0: stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, I can't get past the It's impossible to do. You the that I can get past the of you.
1: Hello everyone, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. The Christian evidence is, uh, Radio show exclusively on WIBG 1020, every Tuesday between 5 and 6 p.m. This is the show that helps Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And I see Evidence for Faith fulfilling three roles—strengthening believers, evangelizing unbelievers, and shaping the culture. Because one of the things that we do talk about is Christian worldview— and how the truths of the Bible impact all areas of life, not just spiritual things, but areas such as politics, economics, um, history, Mm.
1: biology even. Sure. And, you know, one of the other things is, Keith, along those lines, uh, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you have to park your brains at the curbside. You can actually be academic. You can be intelligent and you can be a believer all at once absolutely, without having to worry about being an imbecile, which is
2: really how the left-wing media would portray any believer. Right. So we're here to strengthen you in your Christian walk and um, uplift you to help you realize that what you believe in really is true, that you, can, you don't only have the Holy Spirit inside you testifying to the truth of Christianity— you also have all the facts on your side, and you have great argumentation mm. on, your, on your behalf. And when you learn the arguments that Mike and I talk about, and you learn how to defend the Christian faith, that gives you boldness mm. to be able to go out and share that with other people, because you can be confident that no matter what they come up with, it's not going to be as strong an argument as you've got, since you've got all the facts on your side. Right, and what we're all about here, folks, are evidences— for the Christian faith.
1: These are, these are sound, doctrinal, everyday things that are found in the
2: literature going back two centuries. John Catedy is our sound engineer today, and John, do you have a sound for something new? We're going to announce, like a drum roll, because we're going to announce something new. No? Okay, well, after Woo! we... Yeah, that boo on you... That's right. There you go. Ooh. What are they chanting? Are they, were they chanting Mike and Keith? Mike yeah. and Keith. Good, good. We have a website available now, and it's evidenceforfaith.com, and the four being the number four. So Evidence, the number four, faith.com, where you can see a little bit of information about the show, a little bit of information about Mike and I, and a place where you can uh, listen to podcasting. So all the previous shows will be up sooner or later. Right now, we've only got about five uploaded, but there'll be more coming every day. And uh, each week, then, we'll add the current show onto the list so that you can podcast and you can share with your friends.
1: So the neat thing is that if you miss a given show, you can just refer to the website because it'll be downloaded immediately upon
2: completion of each show. That's right. And one of the f- another future thing is a Defenders Club. We're going to have actual uh, meetings of people who are interested in apologetics. So if you're in the South Jersey area and you, fe- you go to a church and you feel like you're the only person that's interested in apologetics at your church, you can come and meet with like-minded people, and we're going to train people and work on projects together and pray together and things like that. So that will be coming up. Probably is going to begin with a Bible study on the Truth Project starting in January. So more details of that coming up. Keith,
1: I'd like to make one little newsworthy announcement, oh, yeah. and it comes right out of the medical literature. Yeah, you were telling me about uh, this. This is great. In uh, one of the, one of the uh, journals that I get at the office, Archives of Internal Medicine, the current issue dated October 28th. You know, that's tomorrow. But the current issue talks about prayer in medicine. And uh, um, uh, a multitude of physicians were surveyed nationwide about religion in medicine and prayer in medicine. And they had a good response, uh, and the bottom line is that about half of the physicians surveyed felt that prayer was appropriate given certain circumstances, and especially if the patient requested prayer. Uh, The the negative part of this came out of the greater Northeast, whereas only about 10% of all physicians surveyed felt that prayer had no place whatsoever in medicine, period. And that, so uh, that was the largest? That Yes, and I, I felt that that was kind of curious because when you look back uh, over the last three centuries, you know, with the pilgrims and so forth coming to this country, right. they settled the greater Northeast. In fact, all of the uh, seminaries were, were started pretty much at the Ivy League schools at the very outset. Right. And it just goes to show you the apostasy that has come out of those those um, areas uh, of higher learning uh, over the years.
2: Yeah, that's the Northeast for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, okay, that's good. <laughs> Thank you, John. All right, let's get into today's topic. Um, I have a Bible verse, Isaiah forty-five twenty-one. This is from the uh, NIV. It says, Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. God claims to tell the future. Mm. So we're going to check it out in the Bible and see if that claim is true. Because the Bible, you know, we've been the last couple of weeks talking about the remarkable accuracy of the Bible as an ancient document the manuscript evidence that we have, the reliability, and the historical accuracy. But there's more to the Bible than just uh, being an ancient document and being accurate. It actually makes predictions of events occurring centuries later. Hmm. Now, who can do that? You know, this claim, the claim from the Bible that it's written by God, well, anyone can claim that. Right, And there are plenty of other texts out there that do claim to be authored by God. Mm. So some, like, direct dictation. You know, the Bible only claims to be inspired through inspired writers. But other texts claim this is a dictation. This is word for word from God directly.
1: Yes, and as I say, it would always end his little... you know, written uh, oratory from from God, he would say, thus saith the Lord, as if the Lord was whispering in his ear, and that he would make the pronouncement at a a critical time in the history of the Jewish people.
2: You're talking about a prophet like... Yes. Yeah, right. So, um, but this claim alone doesn't prove anything, right? I mean, anybody can claim that they heard something from God and write a book about it. Hmm. So... So, so how do we know
1: that this came from God? Okay. And there, there's basically three ways that we can know that. That's right. And uh, one of them, of course, is uh, his speaking directly
2: to us yeah. or through a prophet. If, well, if he spoke directly to you, uh, you would know, right? Assumably, you would know it was God. Well, yes,
1: and the way you test that is to see if it's consistent with Scripture. Right. If it's inconsistent with Scripture— and it ain't from God. So that's one way that God can reveal himself to us. Right. Uh, he can reveal himself through miracles. Right. Right. Okay? And I think that each and every one of us has experienced a miracle in our lifetime, either
2: directly or through a family member. And certainly this is the way that uh, Jesus uh, showed that he was from God, uh, was by doing miracles. And so, he, But, you know, the sad thing about it is that even
1: contemporary people during his day, during his walk in his public ministry, who witnessed the
2: miracles, didn't receive it, and didn't believe it, and didn't see it. Yeah, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to agree, but it's at least evidence, it's at least proof that it is coming from God. And then finally,
1: through special revelation, all you have to do is look at the environment around you. But I personally believe it that in this day and age of highly technical uh, information transfer and high-tech Um, equipment that we use. I believe that in the scientific laboratory right now, especially the genetics laboratory, I believe that most of the special revelation that's going to come to this generation is going to be through the genetics laboratory. I've always said that DNA is the thumbprint of God, and I believe that everything that we learn about DNA and how incredibly complex it is, it's a God thing. There's no doubt about it. This right. could not have evolved from
2: primordial soup, as the Darwinian evolutionists would say. Right. Well, that's, like you say, that's uh, that's general revelation. That's God proving that he's there. Yeah. So, but how does God prove that this is a message from him? Right? How does he prove that? That's what we're going to look at today. Prophecy. Prophecy is how he can prove that what he said really did come from him, that it wasn't just somebody claiming that they're writing for God, or I'm a prophet, therefore I'm going to write this book, because no mere man would be capable of predicting events occurring hundreds of years later in precise detail. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to do, Keith,
1: as we, as this thing unfolds, we're going to uh, take a special interest in the skeptic's perspective Right. of historical uh, biblical truth and revelation and so forth, and prophecy. Right. So, because the skeptics uh, allege that many of the biblical prophecies were actually written well after the events occurred, as, right. if, as if the scriptures were doctored, so to speak, after the event occurred and they sort of went back and inserted it.
2: Yeah, that's how they explain it away.
1: But we know that that's technically impossible, given the fact that the documents were copied the way they were copied. You know, uh, and the dead, dead Sea Scrolls, I think, are a case in point. Uh, in 1948, they were discovered, and and prove that the actual text from Isaiah
2: is what it was. And we—that's right, and that's right. So there. So if there's a prophecy in the Book of Isaiah that happens after Isaiah was long dead, and so it it wasn't written after the events, if the events happened later.
1: Yeah. One of the other things that the skeptics throw at uh, uh, believers is that. They allege that many of the events that were actually reported as fulfillment of prophecy were not actually historical events. But, you know, we know already that the historicity of the Old and the New Testaments have been proven time and time again, not only with other ancient historical documents that came out of the secular world, but also with uh, inscriptions and and archaeological finds, Mm -hmm. as we've found and discussed in the the shows in the last uh, three to four weeks.
2: Right. So we're going to take a look at events where there's actual universal agreement amongst historians and compare the prophecies that scholars agree were written long before those events. So there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, but we're going to focus on seven groups of prophecies, look at seven specific prophecies that could not have been messed with, that happened long after the text was, everyone agrees the text was written, and that it specifically um, correlates. So let's get into the first one. This is uh, a kind of a general prophecy. It's a concept that appears throughout the Old Testament. And it's the idea, it's it's this prophecy that we first find in Genesis 12, uh, chapter th- uh, chapter 12, verse 3. And it says, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Now, this is kind of a general description, but it's very interesting because who was Abraham? Abraham was a guy wandering around in the desert. You know, uh, he did have, he was fairly wealthy, had lots of flocks and sheep, and a big family and lots of servants. But other than that, you know, God is speaking to him and saying... I'm going to bless the entire world, all the nations of the world. Now there's all kinds of substantiations of this and repetitions of this throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 22.18, 49.10, in Psalms we have it in 22.27, 86 verse 9, Isaiah picks up on this theme, chapter 2 verse 3, and I could go on and on, it's in Daniel, it's in Hosea, it's in Malachi... Uh, Even in Matthew, there's a mention of it in chapter 24, verse 14. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that God is going to bless the nations because of Abraham and through Abraham.
1: And the interesting thing here, Keith, is that when um, Abraham and Sarah were married, they were barren. They didn't have children for almost 100 years, till they were about 100 years old. And neither Abraham nor Sarah believed That they would have children. Even when God said that he would bless their descendants and they would be more numerous than the stars
2: in the sky. Right. They found it hilarious. Right. You know? Yep. So this is a a very interesting prophecy because um, even the most extreme critic of the Bible is going to say that the Old Testament wasn't written back in those days. It wasn't written by Moses. It wasn't written by uh, Daniel. It was written later and just claimed to be written by those people. It was written around the 5th century B.C., okay? So um, so it would be impossible if these events happen after to have been written in, right? Right, and of course, if you fast forward, oh, yeah. we now know that
1: uh, it wasn't until the spread of Christianity throughout the world that all the people's obtain the blessing through Christ and the Holy Spirit and the relationships that they developed as a result of that, not only within their own body of believers, but also themselves personally. Right. And that we know now that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham,
2: and we'll trace that lineage in a little bit. So it's not until the Christian world, and we look around, we have um, Christianity is the dominant religion in the world. Um, Many nations call themselves Christian nations— and so there's a worldwide influence from the Abrahamic heritage, and that is an indisputable fact, and that is what was prophesied. So the, throughout the Old Testament, we have these promises to Abraham that because of his descendants, there would be blessings and happiness throughout the world, and look what Christianity has done for the world. Mm. So that's our first fulfilled prophecy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And you can call in for the uh, discussion if you'd like, 609-398-1020. Well, let's move on to the second prophecy. Um, The Bible, during the time when the Jews had been captured and taken into Babylonian captivity there is prophecies made about a second period of judgment, okay? So they're in the first um, period of judgment, and that's when the skeptics think that the the whole Bible was written. But there's this prophecy about a second period of judgment, followed by a restoration for Israel, and long after the Babylonian exile. I think I've got the... uh, Bible verse there if you want to read it Mike it's uh this is Isaiah chapter 11 verses 10 through 12 yep
1: and this is from the NIV uh, version and verse 10 in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush and Elam, from Babylonia and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the
2: four quarters of the earth. Okay, so he's talking about a second time there's going to be a judgment, and Daniel, in chapter 9, verse 26, prophesies that the temple will be destroyed during this second punishment, and in fact, that did happen in A.D. 70. So after that second punishment, there's going to be a restoration. Now, from as early as the 17th century, Christian scholars recognized that these prophecies indicated that there was going to be a restoration of the nation of Israel as an actual state in Palestine— so since the 17th century, scholars have been, Christian scholars have been looking at that and saying, this is a prophecy saying that Israel will be restored as a state. Hmm. And that actually came to fruition historically right after
1: World War II. Yep. And uh, the timing was very interesting because uh, probably the most intense period of, of uh, Jewish uh, persecution happened during Hitler's reign over Nazi Germany and as he tried to conquer Europe. Um, So this this occurred three uh, years after the fall of Nazi Germany
2: Mm -hmm. in 1948. And over 2,000 years after it was prophesied. Mm -hmm. So there is an incredible prophecy for you. This one very specifically says what's going to happen. 2,000 years later, it actually happens Mm in 1948. Amazing. There, there's another uh, pretty amazing uh, prophecy that uh,
1: number three go- goes back to Ezekiel. Um, and in fact, it, it centers around the city of Tyre, T Y R E, which is off the coast of uh, modern day Lebanon. <clears throat> but in Ezekiel uh, chapter 26, uh, verses three, four, four, 3 through fourteen, um, Keith, you're going to uh, share that with our listening. Yeah, I got audience. that.
2: That's a this is a really long passage. So let me just read part of it. It says, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fish nets. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Mm -hmm. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, From the north I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you build a ramp up to your walls and raise his shields against you he will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with its weapons his horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust and it goes on and on and on all about the uh, terrible uh, bloodshed and war and stuff then towards the end here it says I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fish nets. you will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. And
1: that, that is a phenomenal uh, prophecy because e- Ezekiel predicts the destruction of the city of Tyre, even though it had previously withstood repeated attacks in the preceding centuries. Exactly. But some of the fulfillment actually occurred during Ezekiel's lifetime in the 6th century BC, but other parts which obviously he couldn't have predicted unless this was revealed to him by God, these, these actual predictions came later. Uh, for instance, uh, Tyre actually consisted of two parts. It was a, a mainland city, as well as a small island about a half a mile off uh, off of the coast, again of modern day Lebanon. And uh, we know now that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, laid siege to this city for about thirteen years, during 585 to 572 BC, and he captured the mainland portion. Right. So this this would fulfill verses six through eleven.
2: Right. So so even the most extreme skeptics would place this text in the 5th century, say. Okay, so it's possible that they could, that this could have been um, an explanation for the verses 6 through 11, but it doesn't explain what happens after the Old Testament was written, because there was further fulfillment of these prophecies later that took place, for instance, in uh... 332 bc now that would be about a hundred years after the old testament had been completely written the canon was closed and it would be long after ezekiel had died alexander the great came along and decided to attack the island portion of tire he built a two hundred foot wide causeway out onto the island now the water was about twenty feet deep he was looking around at the destruction of the city on the mainland and he decided he could use these building blocks as a causeway. So he took everything from the building materials of the city on the mainland and actually scraped the city down to bedrock completely flat. And do you know that it is still used as a place by fishermen to dry their nets because it's a big it's just a flat area of bedrock and you can actually look at this spot on the map on google maps isn't that amazing yeah because of course that fulfilled uh, verses 4 and 5
1: and then verses 12 through 14 um i just find it amazing that they built a 200 foot wide causeway out of all of the the big granite blocks or whatever whatever the stone material was uh, and just dropped them one after the other until they could lay siege to the island and, and of course they were done
2: yep and then, remember in verse three, said that there would be wave after wave of enemy attacks. So there were later attacks that fulfilled this verse. Antigonus attacked in 30, uh, 314 BC. then the Muslims attacked in AD 1291. So Tyre was totally destroyed never rebuilt, and this was a prophecy in verse 14, that it would never be rebuilt again. And I, I might add our,
1: uh, for our listening audience that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that uh, the text was altered in any way. Again, right. the, the Old Testament canon was closed, yep. and if you know anything about how the uh, the Hebrew scribes uh, transcribed each scroll of the Old Testament, uh, you know, after the parchment went bad or whatever... Uh, and, of course, the old test, the, the old parchments were destroyed, and the new the, the new parchments had to be absolutely perfect, jot and tittle, for it to be accepted and, and transmitted generation after generation after generation. Yep.
2: So there's a uh, mathematician professor uh, by the name of Peter Stoner who calculated the odds of this particular prophecy coming true, and he used to do this with his uh, math students, so he had uh, many, many, many students, up to about 600 of them, working on problems and trying to figure out exactly what the odds would be. And so after about 10 years of work on this and other prophecies, he calculated that the odds of this prophecy coming true at about 1 in 75 billion, the chance that, it, that this could have come true on its own just accidentally. Mm. So an amazing, amazing, fulfilled prophecy, again, happening hundreds of years after the prophecy was written down. So that is our third prophecy. Now our fourth prophecy. This is pretty cool. Now remember, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, you can join the conversation at 398-1020. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Laracus. I like this one. Because it's about a very famous guy. Mm. Alexander the Great. Yeah. My my favorite Greek general. Cool. <laughs> this is really interesting, this prophecy. And this, I think, talks about Alexander the, Break, the Great. So um, it's from Daniel 11, verses 2 through 4. Let me just read this for you, and you'll get a feel for what it says here. How then... I'm sorry. Now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven, it will not go to his descendants, nor will it, will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Very interesting, because yeah. Daniel wrote that 200 years before
1: Alexander was even born. That's and right. even, even the staunchest critics admit that it was written at least 100 years before Alexander had died so these these verses actually are very accurate because they describe the fact that Alexander was a great commander of the Greek army. That's right. And they had a vast empire and vast wealth. That's right. And uh, even when Alexander died, as Daniel wrote, the empire was divided
2: and not to his descendants amongst the generals, right? And uh, it was divided into four parts that's right. and and the you know it says that it's going to be divided to the four winds. So you think that it just means scattered all over, but in reality, it was actually divided into four parts. Now, this is a perfect case, Keith, of history, outside history, outside of the Bible, proving
1: the prophecy. Right. You know, the historical facts are the historical facts. They are what they are. And the Bible predicted it by at least 100 to 200 years through Daniel.
2: That's right. And, and there's even the implication here, we know, that, we know that Alexander the Great died as a young man, and there is an implication that this ruler would be young, because he says that um, after he has appeared, so as soon as he's gained control, he's going to die. As soon as he gains control, he's going to lose his empire, and it's going to go to his generals. So that implies that he's going to be young, and in fact, uh, Alexander died as a young man. So that's our fourth astounding prophecy from the Bible. And again, written hundreds of years uh, before the events actually unfolded. Well, number five is about the kingdom of Edom, okay? Now, the kingdom of Edom was a a, a long-surviving uh, country. In fact, there's, in the Old Testament, it there's passages that talk about how the Edomites used to attack the Israelites when they were uh, on their way to the Promised Land. So Edom had been there for a long, long time, and it's in a section uh, south of the Dead Sea. So there's, the prophecy is found in, um, and actually this is mentioned in several places, but Jeremiah 49, 17 through 18 is one prophecy, so we we'll probably read that one, and then it's also, now, Jeremiah made his prophecies in the 7th, 7th century BC, but Isaiah had already prophesied about the destruction of Edom in the 8th century, and then Ezekiel also made similar uh, prophecies about the city of, uh, or the the uh, uh, nation of Edom in the 6th century. So let's hear from Jeremiah forty nine seventeen through 18. Okay, and, th- and
1: this is what the NIV version says, Edom will become an object of horror. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all of its wounds. As Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown along with their neighboring towns, says the Lord, so no one will live there. No man
2: will dwell in it. Now, people might Um, not recognize the nation of Edom, but they probably recognize its capital. The name of its capital was Petra. Mm. Now you can go there as a tourist these days and see this amazing city that was carved out of solid rock in a very deep canyons, which made it uh, incredibly defensible, and it's been completely abandoned. So the... Uh, Verses uh, talk about Edom's demise, its destruction, and its complete disappearance from the world. And Edom's decline began about the 4th century AD. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the prophecy was made, it began to decline. Trade routes were changed, the Romans conquered uh, the Edomites and it was finally completely desolate by 1200 A.D. So um, changing trade routes was one of the main things, but then there was this devastating earthquake that occurred in 363 A.D. uh, When the Muslims were conquering nation after nation, they conquered uh, the Edomites in 636 A.D., till finally when crusaders built a castle nearby in the 12th century, they reported that the entire region was completely deserted. Mm. So an amazing thing. It wasn't until the 19th century that Petra was rediscovered, um, and it's still uninhabited to this day, but you can uh, take a tourist trip and go visit it. Kind of interesting. Fascinating, actually. So here is, again, a very specific, um, very clear prophecy, multiple prophecies by three different prophets, describing how this nation would be completely disappeared and and people would forget about it. And that is, in fact, what happened centuries later. Hmm. An amazing thing that no person—think about it. If you were living at the time of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah— would you dare say that uh, Edom was going to be destroyed and wiped out and it would be completely forgotten about and never rebuilt? Yeah, it, car- a city carved out of stone. How, yeah. How, how's it going to go away? Exactly. Impossible. And it had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. So um, a very unlikely prophecy to be fulfilled, and yet it was precisely fulfilled in every detail. All right, number six, prophecy number... F- Number six, this one I think is the mo- one of the most compelling. Yeah, and yeah, it is one of my favorites. I-, I like to, if anybody asks me for a single evidence that the Bible is written by God, uh, I choose this prophecy. Uh, this and we're is, talking about Daniel. Yeah, yeah, this is a prophecy of Daniel. It's from chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and it's called The Seventy Weeks of Daniel. This is truly an amazing prophecy because this is where Daniel the prophet describes when the Messiah is going to come, how many years until the Messiah is going to come. So this is really an incredible uh, prophecy. Um, This prophecy was written around 530 BC, okay? This is when the uh, Israelites had been captured Uh, by the Babylonians. Jerusalem had already been destroyed, okay, and Daniel knows that the prophecy about the uh, Babylonian captivity was going to last for 70 years, and it's getting towards the end of the 70 years. So he begins to pray, asking God, what's going to happen next? And he prays, and he gets an answer Mm. as to what is going to happen next, and it's, it's amazing. Now, I guess let's, let's read the, uh, the prophecy, and then we'll uh, explain one of the details of it that you have to, have to be aware of. Okay, and this is Daniel
1: uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And folks, if you have a pen and pencil handy, it might be useful for some mathematical calculations because that's going to be important. And this has to do with the 77s, okay? Uh, and this is starting with verse uh, 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decrees to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many from one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation
2: until the end that is, dist- is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, now let's analyze uh, this prophecy. One thing to be aware of is that Israel had what they called weeks of years, and after seven, after every seven years, they were supposed to have a Sabbath year in which they would let the, the fields uh, go fallow where mm-hmm. they wouldn't plant things. So there was this. So what Daniel's talking about is sevens, seven, meaning seven-year periods. So, and he the the uh, it specifically mentions when the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. So by doing the calculations, it's four hundred and eighty-three years later. Four hundred and eighty-three years would pass until the Messiah would come. So. Starting when, though? What does the prophecy say? When when would that 483-year um, period? Well, it says when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So we know when this occurred. This is a historical record. Uh, it happened, Artaxerxes was the emperor of Babylon, and in 457 BC, and this is uh, recorded in Ezra 7, 11 through 26, he... Uh, announced that Israel could return to its city and the city to be rebuilt and the temple. So if you calculate 483 years later, you arrive at 26 A.D., the established beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay, this 483 is 7, not times 70, but 7 times 69. That's right. That's 483. Right. So the prophecy specifies also that this Messiah would be cut off, and cut off is a term used throughout the Old Testament to mean executed. So the Messiah would come, then he would be executed. It also says that after the Messiah appears, the temple will be destroyed. Now this is a very specific temple they're talking about, this is the second temple The first one had already been destroyed. Daniel's in captivity after that first temple. He talks about a second temple. Mm -hmm. Then that will be destroyed. The second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Now this means that no one else could be the Messiah, because the Messiah would come before the destruction of the second temple, which happened in 70 A.D. Let's hear what... uh, professor of religion, Ed Hinson, has to say about this particular
0: prophecy. The prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9 is one of the most intricate, detailed prophecies in all of the Bible. Uh, It's the only timing passage that we have to tell us when the Messiah is actually coming. From the time of the decree uh, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem uh, given to Nehemiah by the Persian Emperor Artaxerxes uh, until the time that the Messiah comes and is killed and is cut off uh, is 69 sevens or 483 years. Uh, It works out in the chronology on a Jewish calendar almost perfectly to the very time that Jesus enters the city uh, on Palm Sunday uh, and the crowd is shouting Hosanna. Uh, We call it the triumphal entry But in reality, it was not a triumph. Uh, It was the presentation of the king who was then rejected by the leadership, accepted by the people, rejected by the leaders, and within a week, he's crucified and killed, which is exactly what Daniel 9 said. The Messiah will come and be cut off and killed. Now imagine Daniel receiving that prophecy in Daniel 9, thinking, when is the Messiah going to come? And then the Lord reveals to him, it'll be 483 years from this point to that point until he comes. And then when he comes, Daniel, he's going to be killed. And Daniel's shocked and horrified probably by the prophecy. And yet he goes on to tell him, but he's going to reign and rule. And there are the two lines of prophecy in the Old Testament. A savior is coming who's going to suffer and die. A king is coming who's going to reign and rule. And it turns out it's the same person. It's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God.
1: So, so Keith, let me just summarize this real quick. 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes, which was obviously prophesied in Ezra, 483 years later, we're going to fast forward, and now we're at 26 A.D. Correct. Okay, and this is the beginning, the assumed uh, beginning of Jesus' uh, public uh, ministry, right? So here he is. He's predicted to be the Messiah, right? Uh, now it hasn't unfolded yet, but obviously historically we know that it does unfold to be the, the Messiah. So Jesus enters the scene and he begins his public ministry. And people were actually expecting a Messiah. They had been yeah, for years and that's years right, and years.
2: Because they knew the prophecies. Right. And the Old Testament is chock full of prophecies that a Messiah would come right. and deliver. So we see in the New Testament, people coming up to Jesus, are you the Messiah? Um, right. Right, because they knew the prophecies. So right. this stuff could not have been added in later. Right. You know, I mean, the people at the time knew about it. And and, they were so numerous that there's no way that anything could have been done like that. And, even more compelling,
1: Keith, is that the sacred scrolls could not have been doctored up, even after Jesus' execution, because the scribes and Pharisees were so against Jesus' ministry that they would do nothing to insert anything that would suggest that he was the Messiah. Exactly.
2: Absolutely not. Yeah, they had a real problem with the prophecies that did seem to point to Jesus. So, it, so the, you know, the, the Messiah would bring God's salvation to people, mm. and there is more than 60 prophecies that refer to the coming Messiah. Let's hear from uh, Dr. Richard Robinson about the prophecy issue.
3: Prophecy does support that Jesus is the Messiah. You might ask what is a Messiah and in the Bible that refers to a person who would come down the corridors of history and be our deliverer. Now that of course raises the question why do we need deliverance and from what? And that takes us to the backstory. story of Christianity, found in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, where we see that because humanity turned against God, we brought wars, hatred, strife, family dysfunction into this world. But we also see that God crafts the solution, and that solution involves this individual who, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, becomes more and more clearly defined. We learn that he's somebody Jewish. We learn that he's a descendant of King David. We learn that he has to be born in Bethlehem. We learn that he's going to die on our behalf, rise from the dead. And when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we see all of this fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You know, coming from a Jewish family, my grandparents were of the generation who said, there's a Messiah coming and when he comes, he's going to make wars stop. He's going to bring peace to the world. I was in Israel a few years ago talking with a young Jewish man on the beach who asked me, why are we at war all around? Why isn't there peace in the world if Jesus is the Messiah? I said, you know, God could snap his fingers and bring peace to the world right now, but if we didn't change on the inside, we'd have the world back the way it is in a very short time. I said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but the Messiah came to bring us peace in our hearts Peace with God, and make us into the kind of people that can bring God's peace to the rest of the world. That's what the promise of the Messiah is about throughout the Old Testament, and that's what we see when it reaches its climax in the pages of the New Testament.
2: So the Messiah could not just be anyone who happened to show up at the right time, and was a leader, right? You know, sometime after the Temple was rebuilt, and before it was destroyed. He had to fit a certain uh, genealogy to begin with, he had to be seed of Abraham, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, son of Isaac, Genesis twenty-one twelve, son of Jacob of the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse and the house of David. All of these specifically prophesied that the Messiah would come only through this family line, this genealogy. So, not just anyone could have shown up and be taken seriously as a candidate for the Messiah. Well, let's take it another couple of steps further, Keith. There's actually seven credentials that the Messiah
1: had to fulfill before he could actually be seriously considered as the Messiah candidate. Number one, he'd have to be born in Bethlehem, that's Micah 5.2. He had to be preceded by a messenger, Malachi 3.1. Obviously, uh, that would be John. Mm -hmm. Uh, Come to Jerusalem riding on a colt, that's Zechariah 9.9. Betrayed for thirty pieces of silver, right. Zechariah again, and the betrayer would have to return the silver, but they would have to be, re- but it would have to be refused, and then the betrayer would then throw the silver onto the floor of the temple again, Zechariah, and he could not speak uh, in his own defense. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that Jesus was silent before his accusers, and then finally his hands and his feet would have to be pierced, Psalms twenty-two
2: sixteen. Right. So seven specific prophecies about the Messiah, and we said that there were more than 60 of them, but if you look at just these seven, is it possible that, you know, maybe, oh, you Christians are just reading into them? Let's hear what uh, Professor Hinson has to say about that
0: One of the criticisms of prophecy often is, well, they're vague in general and the Christians read things into them that really were not intended by them. But when you look at detailed prophecies like Zechariah 9, it's obvious that is not the case at all. That's why God gave so many specific details in prophecies like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 9 or even in Daniel chapter 9. He gives us these intricate details so that we will understand this didn't just happened by coincidence. This is not just something Christians could read back into the Old Testament. Each detail tells us specifically what is going to happen so that when it occurs, it is obvious this is the fulfillment of it.
2: So so we're not reading into this. These are very specific, can only uh, mean one thing, and it just happens that it fits a particular person. In fact, what are the odds that these seven prophecies would fit a person? One in one hundred trillion. You know. You know what's really interesting about that, Keith? Yeah. The number of people who's
1: who have ever lived on this planet throughout time is about a hundred billion. Right.
2: So a yeah. hundred trillion, one in hundred tri- trillion. Yeah. It's it has to be only Jesus. Yeah. Now let's hear. Here's a clip I have from Lee Strobel talking about the these uh, credentials of the Messiah.
4: When the Jewish scriptures, which the Bible calls the Old Testament, there are several dozen prophecies about the coming of the Messiah who would be sent by God to redeem Israel and the world. In all of history, only one individual, Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilled these predictions and thus he is the Christ, which is a Greek word meaning Messiah. The prophet Isaiah revealed the manner of the Messiah's birth, of a virgin. Micah pinpointed the place of his birth, Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah specified his ancestry, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. Daniel pinpointed the time in history when the Messiah would die. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, his accusation by false witnesses, and his manner of death pierced in the hands and feet, even though crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, and his rising from the dead. Isaiah 53 alone contains 12 predictions, and Isaiah 9 shows us that the Messiah would be the mighty God. All of this was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Jesus' extraordinary fulfillment of these prophecies defies all odds. One mathematician worked with 600 students to estimate the likelihood of any person in history fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies. The number was one chance, in a trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion. That's equal to the number of minuscule atoms in a trillion-trillion-trillion-trillion-billion-universes, the size of our universe. Jesus said in Luke 24, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about Me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And it was, against all odds, only in Him. Jesus was predicted in very clear terms, to be the coming Messiah and God of Israel and of the whole world, including you and me. You
1: know, Keith, only the God who created the space-time continuum could have predicted this and authored this.
2: That's right. So this is incredibly strong evidence that the Bible is what it claims to be, a communication from God to the human race. God has something to say to you. And you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks. And Michael Arrakis. And join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Good show.